This podcast was recorded on March 14th, 2018. The views and opinions expressed herein are of the date recorded and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities. Such views and opinions may differ from those of DoubleLine Capital or its affiliates and are subject to change without notice. DoubleLine has no obligation to provide any updates or changes. All right, hello. Welcome to The Sherman Show. I'm here today with my co-host, Samuel Lau. Hello. Hello, Mr. Lau. And today we have a special guest from Double Line. We have Morris Chen, who's a portfolio manager in the commercial mortgage and commercial real estate area. Hi, everyone. Well, so that was a good awkward start. Hopefully it gets a little bit better, Morris. I know you're a little camera shy in general, so hopefully you're not as mic shy today. But uh, why don't you start off telling us a little bit about where you grew up, went to school, how you got in the business, and uh, give us a little bit of background of how someone gets in the, the commercial mortgage area. Yeah, thanks for having me, everyone. Grew up in San Francisco and in the Bay Area, about 30 miles uh, south of San Francisco. So you didn't grow up in San Francisco. Yeah. Like everybody else who claims San yeah, Francisco. You kind of have right? to say it yeah. because you know no some people some people might know where Sunnyvale, California is, which is where I was from. But yeah, initially immigrated from Taiwan, but grew up in Sunnyvale. And surrounded by Silicon Valley, back then it was a lot more hardware tech companies. My dad and my parents were in the hardware sector making computers for Dell and Compaq on behalf of a Taiwanese company. But with that said, from a background perspective, that's where I grew up. Ultimately went to school down in UC Riverside in Los Angeles County. And the genesis of kind of jumping into the finance career in itself is at that time, my junior, senior year, trying to figure out you know what I wanted to do what sort of sectors there are. And initially, back then, and I would say in 2002, 2003, investment banking sounded great. That was something that was, you know, what a couple of my friends back then aspired to do and were, were trying to get into. And for my sense, it was a career path. So investment banking, obviously, you know, from an investment bank perspective, recruiting wasn't as active at UC Riverside. And so I had to be a little more resourceful. And so asked around, shot my resume around, called around, utilized a lot of resources at, at networks that I had back then, which was limited in college, and ultimately landed internship at Morgan Stanley my junior year. And then subsequently, you know, eventually landed another internship my senior year at TCW. That was not an investment bank, but it was as close as I could get back then. That's what started the finance career. From a role perspective, I still recall working within the credit mortgage group at TCW, which was my internship. So that, explain that. What do you mean by credit mortgages? Credit mortgage in itself, it's essentially, in terms of the mortgage market, there's two different types of risk. There's one that's agency guaranteed, which is government guaranteed type risk, less so credit sensitive, obviously, because it's guaranteed by the U.S. government, backed by the full faith of the U.S. government. On the credit side, there's mortgage investments that are not guaranteed by anyone other than the prospective borrower and the underlying investment. So you have to do your credit work. And that's where this credit mortgage group in itself was focused on, non-guaranteed mortgage investments that can encompass both residential and commercial real estate. And so as part of my internship, I still remember at that time, we were looking at asset-backed securities as well as CMBS securities, putting together books 
looking for double ETCs, enhanced equipment, trust certificates backed by uh, airplane leases. Also putting together books on the retail sector for research. We're trying to analyze exposure to retail corporate tenants than commercial mortgage bonds. That was part of my internship sort of work. Putting together a lot of data surrounding these companies. What was Winn-Dixie doing in terms of sales per square feet? What was Delta doing in terms of the airplane leases that they were exposed to and their wherewithal to pay? I like the perspective of the intern because when you're talking about the internship, the way you described it is I put together books. Right. right. Yeah. So it's all books. Yeah, it's, it's all, all books. books at the end of the day right. because you're trying to synthesize the analysis. But if I could distinguish between those two for kind of listeners too, because you talked about the government guaranteed side of the mortgage market, where it's not as reliant on underlying credit fundamentals, at least specific to those mortgage pools. Right. But I think of it more as a statistical analysis or looking at tales of distributions and playing on statistical concepts like the law of large numbers and things like that. Right. But when you talk about these credit assets. You know, it really is re-underwriting these securities, right? Mm -hmm. We use that phrase, re-underwriting. So maybe you can explain what that means to underwrite a security out there, because I know that's some language we'll use throughout this. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, when we're using the term re-underwriting in itself, you're effectively going through whether it's a company financial or a property financial to assess their wherewithal for the financial condition of the company and the wherewithal for the company to pay their debt service payments. So when we're re-underwriting, we're going through the income statements, the balance sheets, just to make sure that under various scenarios, whether it's assuming the economy goes through some sort of transition or the economy goes through some sort of speed bump, that the company will be fine, that the property will be fine, uh, that the borrower will be fine. So assessing, when we're saying re-underwriting, it's essentially assessing credit risk in that that concept. So let's go into this commercial mortgage market because it has a different behavior than the residential mortgage market, right? It's a different point in the cycles, and there's a different analysis that goes under it. And again, I was using this phrase, law of large numbers, yeah. you know, the statistical concept. But when you talk about a commercial property, we're sitting in one here in downtown Los Angeles today, right? How do you go about assessing due diligence? How do you do that underwriting process? And what allows you to get comfortable with kind of assessing this uh, debt service and ultimately the repayment of the borrowed money. Right. There's two sides to that sort of uh, analysis. And, and one side is you can have all the property financials available. Obviously, you're going to have assess and analyze the, the financial statements of the property, what the property has done historically over the last few years. So what, this is like the, the lease rates, occupancy. Right. Lease rates, occupancy, the tenant list in terms of you know how long these tents are in the space, when their lease expires. These are all information that you need to fact check against information that you're, is readily available in the market. You want to know what the market is doing. So if you're looking at this building, for example, it's nice to know that the rent that tenant A is paying is $9 a square feet. But what does that mean relative to the market? Is the market at $10? Is the market at $5? That'll help you triangulate whether or not, as you're re-underwriting, whether or not that tenant payment rate is the correct rate, right? So ultimately, the analysis that goes into looking at tenant financials and looking at property financials is important, allows you to derive a value. But at the end of the day, what it does give you in itself is it gives you a financial snapshot of how the property is doing. The other side of the equation, I think it's extremely important, is borrower. 
There's all different types of bars. Bars have different sort of behavior. It's a bit tough to model. It's not something that's quantitative. I would say a lot of it's subjective and based on experience. You really have to look at how the bar has performed in the past uh, from a historical perspective. You also have to think about what the bar from a financial perspective is. If it's a bar that is on a personal financial statement, the bar has a has extremely limited liquidity. You know that once the building goes into trouble, he's going to have limited resources to support the property and, you know, more prone for default. Whereas on the other side of the equation, if you have a strong borrower, you're able to, you're able to assess that this borrower is strong and the borrower has the wherewithal to withstand any sort of hiccups, then you have a higher likelihood that the borrower would step in and support the property through a, a speed bump. In the financial crisis, you, you saw a lot of a lot of these instances where there's strong bars and the weak bars, uh, just similar to the strong companies and weak companies. If the bar doesn't have the wherewithal to support the debt service, oftentimes they'll walk away from the property, relinquish the keys. Alternatively, there are bars using you know some of the larger private equity funds, as an example, that have long-term capital, that have significant financial resources. They supported properties even though the tenants were leaving. So. You know, using these two sides, financial information assessment on the property, and then the the qualitative side of assessing bars' ability to uh, support properties, that, that kind of puts together how we look at these buildings. So, so most of that that you just mentioned is analysis that you can do on paper, but how important is it to get the, I guess, the more tangible stuff, the getting the boots on the ground and inspecting some of these properties and and just getting a real feel of perhaps foot traffic or taking a look at the actual building in your analysis? As well. I think that's a good question. Uh, but alternatively, I would say that it depends on the risk profile that you're doing. If you're investing in a highly rated AAA CMBS security by way of example, and you have a significant amount of subordination based on the uh, CMBS structure, you're less prone to need to go out and kick the tires. Now, conversely, if you're looking at a first loss risk or you're making a loan specifically as a whole loan investment, I would say, yes, that's extremely important. And that's what's unique about this sector. And for me, what attracted me to this world is there's something tangible that you can kick around and you can look at, you can see, you can assess, you can walk into a, a lobby of an office building and assess the foot traffic that's going on, the wherewithal, the what's the owner operator doing in terms of the property. Oftentimes, when you look at a offering memorandum for a prospective deal, some borrowers would say, hey, we put in about $30 million of renovations. This is what we did. That's great on paper. You can read that all you want and look at pictures, but something is more important to walk the property and see that. Sometimes you have differences of opinion. You can call someone out based on that. If Any they, interesting stories around that where there's just been huge disconnects or you've walked into a crazy neighborhood that you didn't really expect and you couldn't tell that you know, by looking at it on paper? Yeah, you run into that with, I would say, less sophisticated bars. And there's obviously all different types of bars out there from a financial picture perspective. But you know, there's been cases where we were represented a uh, multifamily property in the Midwest the borrower represented about $15,000 improvements in terms of the apartment buildings that he, he put in on a unit-by-unit unit basis. Upon walking the property, we saw that little to no money was spent and to the point where tenants were complaining about the property. Tenants were essentially saying that you know the you know, property hasn't been updated for the last three to five years. And these are all red signs. And this is one example of you know walking, touring the property relative to, you know, what the borrower states on, on a piece of paper. Granted, you know, when borrowers 
do that, they are signing off. It's, you're liable for essentially not telling the truth, but some will be aggressive in that sort of context. But that's just one example. So we do think it's really important in terms of kicking the tires. That's something that obviously is very dependent on the type of risk profile of the commercial real estate debt investment that you're in. You're not going to do that for a AAA investment because it takes a lot of time and it takes a lot of money to process. Now, you're talking about this bottom-up due diligence, hands-on. Let's talk about the macro environment, too. So, obviously, we're talking about commercial real estate. So, you mentioned multifamily is one. But when I think of commercial real estate, you know, to most of our listeners, they think of big high-rises and office buildings. So, it sounds to me that this is a pro-cyclical asset. What I mean by that is that it's good when the economy is good. But how do you think about it when you have an economic downturn? So, we have a recession how do you think about modeling that type of stuff in your analysis and you know, maybe perhaps where we are in the real estate cycle today? Right. That's the way we kind of think about things. And this kind of goes into double line sort of philosophy within the mortgage group in terms of stress testing different sort of scenarios. We do stress test a lot of our investments in a, I would call it a base case a downside case and an upside case perspective, right? I wouldn't say upside is a stress test, but that we can at least see what the overall picture is of the investment that we're invested in. And so thinking about where we are in the cycle, we do think that we're in the later stages. It's about eight years in, seven and a half to eight years in from the trough in terms of the financial crisis uh, for commercial real estate. Property prices have gone up substantially, albeit in selective markets, such as, you know, in the commercial real estate world, we call them primary markets. So essentially, New York, San Francisco, Boston, D.C., Los Angeles, Seattle. So if you think about these markets as a whole, you know, there's been a lot of financial activity. There's been a lot of transaction activity, and there's actually been a lot of cap rate compression. And as you so find that to someone, the cap so rate. cap rates essentially is the expected return on the investment for a commercial real estate property. The way we're kind of thinking about that, the equation in itself is the net cash flow of the property over the property value, expected return. It's yield. It's yield. There you go. Right. And so, you know, from our... You no, know, I just want to make sure you're all fancy talk with your cap rates and everything. Just simply yield, right? <laughs> right. At the end of the right. day, right? Okay. Right. And so that's a measure. Obviously, it's a uniform... Using yield as an example is a uniform measure of, of return within the asset class. And if you think about the yield on the investment or the cap rate on the investment, in most of these markets that we call primary, depending on the asset type, you can be as low as 2.5%. And uh, as wide as four and a half percent. So why would I right. want to lend someone at two and a half percent when I can buy a treasury, two year treasuries at two and a quarter? Right. Right. So you know, there's been some sort of interesting dynamic uh, of why people are paying two and a half. You either pay two and a half because you think that that's cheap relative to the uh, other investments that you're able to access. A lot of foreign capital has has jumped in, thinking that it's extremely safe to invest in in these markets and these strong trophy buildings. And the other side of the argument for to substantiate the investors paying a two and a half percent cap rate is that they think that there's upside in terms of growth, right? The two and a half percent expected return is based on in place cash flows. So in place rents. It's not factoring in any sort of rental upside. So if you're an investor in a building, and this is where we kind of go back into assessing where the market is relative to where your current building is, if the rents are below market and there's substantial upside, some people will justify paying 2.5% on a going-in basis, but the upside may be 4 5 6 depending on how they want to realize that. From an investor perspective, obviously, cap rates have gone one way, and it's gone down. 
And this is not just akin to primary markets. We're seeing that across the country as well. And so, you know, from a stress testing perspective and the way we're thinking about things, cap rates is one way to stress this. Increasing the required rate of return on the investment would ultimately decrease the value of the property that you're looking at. Ultimately, that stresses the loan which ultimately what we're uh, known to invest in, that'll stress the leverage profile of the investment. Anecdotally, what's kind of unique about this, and we're thinking about stress testing, uh, stress testing in general, since 1983, we have some data points. And since 1983, in all rising rate environments, commercial real estate property cap rates have actually compressed in rising rate environments. From an explanation perspective, I mean... Are you defining that kind of as a 10-year rising? You define that as the Fed hiking regime? What, how are you defining that rate rise? We use... Yeah. Right. So we use the 94 to 96 cycle. We also use the 86 to 87, 98 to 99, 05 to 06, and 12 to 13. Okay. Right. So if you kind of think about these rate height cycles, obviously there's different reasons. Uh, it's too early to use the September 7th of 2017 <laughs> to present, right? Yeah. Right, right. And so like anecdotally, if you just think about historically, historically cap rates have actually compressed during these times of rate hikes. A lot of that has to do with the explanation in itself. A lot of that has to do with inflationary expectations. As inflation continues and the economy grows, you would expect rental rates to increase as well. But there are a lot of pundits that would say that, well, this time's different. All right. This time, this cycle where we're at today, a lot of the growth in itself may not be real growth. A lot of the growth may be due to what the what the central banks have created. You can use the phrase quantitative easing. People have heard of it here. Quantitative easing. Right. I would say that we're somewhat in that defensive camp as well. We do think that this time may be different. So as such, you know, in our analysis, we try to stress cap rates wider for a specific reason. We want to know where the breaking point is for each property. If the property right now presents itself, has a 4% cap rate, we'll try to stress that to a point where, where do we break? How much room do we have before, assuming rents stay stable, how much room do we have before before this property breaks, like from a leverage perspective, right? Where the value of the property is below the loan amount. And so, you know, from that concept, that's how we try to stress test our properties in a long way, winded way of answering. I like you using history as a guide, but it reminds me, and I'll, I'll paraphrase this because I won't get it right. There's a quote that's attributed to Warren Buffett that says, if history was all there was to the game, the richest people in the world would be librarians, right? That's the, the caveat I'd throw out there about, you know, using history. And I think we all fall in those camps, but you talk about stress and economic stress. And I think of commercial real estate being kind of a bet on corporate America. Is that, is that kind of fair? It's another way of expressing a view on corporate America indirectly in some ways directly when you have direct loans there. But what did you learn in 2008 going through that cycle where Again, we had high leverage in the system, low cap rates, right. and the world was melting down. What did you learn, you know, working in the space and, you know, how's it made you a better investor and to think maybe it's not differently, but how did it change your perspective on analyzing these securities and, and the market as a whole? I would say that going back to that time, it's easy as an investor to, to think one way. And back then and during the height of the financial crisis, Spreads were widening out substantially. AAA CMBS securities were trading at 30% yields, yield to maturity, which was a large number, relatively speaking, based on historical standards. And most um, people don't believe you're getting the 30%. That's right. That's the reason that they right. add so, yield to maturity. Most people don't believe you're actually getting paid back, right? Right. And so that was that sort of one-sided mentality that most people felt that these securities that were structured, they were worth 
little to nothing. You might not even be paid back. The subordination levels on these securities weren't sufficient enough, and they want to be compensated for that. And that sort of one-sided sort of viewpoint was what caused yields to gap out. And I would say that from a contrarian perspective, in hindsight, and kind of looking back, the learning experiences are, you're supposed to do, there's always a, kind of Jeffrey always talks about this before, there's always a right price. There's no such thing as a bad bond. It's just just a bad price. Right. And so at that point in time, most people were thinking about, oh, this is just a bad bond regardless of yield. But, you know, if you kind of take a step back and you think about where the price is relative to the type of security they're investing in. And if you understand and you do your homework, uh, you're able to pick up a lot of bargains. You know, from, you know, what we've seen in the past, that's a unique learning experience, you know, be well, less so one sided. It's amazing because you're sitting here talking about people wanting to earn two and a half percent today and they didn't want it at 30 percent. Right. And that's per annum, right? Right. right. Uh, it is quite amazing. So let's talk about that too. So it, there's been some research out there over the years of you know we all know what happened in the residential mortgage side. We had a lot of fraudulent loans. You know the securitization, the underwriting standards weren't completely there. People weren't re-underwriting the bonds probably as they should have been. Right. And you know we've had a recovery in the housing market. Some attributed to the Fed, QE. But kind of the silent one that's been increasing in value is the commercial real estate market. And I think if I recall, looking at kind of peaks, you know, relative to the last peak in the cycle, the commercial real estate market is significantly higher than, let's say, the broad-based residential mortgage market. One, should that cause concern? Is there something different this time? And two, how are you thinking about that when talking about the stress tests and talking about the modeling? Are overall property levels a concern? Or is this something that tends to be just biased by, you know, as you mentioned, these primary or larger markets? Right. I think it's a cause for concern based on property markets. It's it's hard to make a blanket statement right now, at least, that the entire commercial real estate sector as a whole is overvalued, despite the fact that the price indices is showing that we're about 30 percent above the previous peak. That's largely skewed. And I would say that the price indices largely tracks repeat transactions in terms of commercial real estate. And also skewed based on the deal size, right? Like if, if there's a billion dollar building that traded, that skews it's like the a market index. cap weighting or right. that effect, right? Is right. What you're saying. Okay. And it kind of goes back into it's skewed because the primary markets are, that's where the transaction activity is. And when we say property markets, I would say, yes, there are certain property markets that are overvalued and you need to be careful. A lot of that has to do with, with impending supply. What's unique about commercial real estate is that since the early 2000s, there's been limited construction activity on the commercial real estate side. We were overbuilt during the last dot-com boom. But since then, and even through the financial crisis, there's been limited construction activity until five years ago. You just said the last dot-com boom. Are are we in the midst of another one? I think, I personally think we are. Um, you know, that's something that is, uh, is that your, your legacy? Is that, is that your legacy family, you know, (laughs) hardware suppliers and stuff? That that, that was the, that was the peak. Okay. That was the peak. Okay. Fair enough. Those were good good times. All right. But continuing on. So you're talking about impending supply. We were undersupplied for a long period of time. We were undersupplied. Undersupplied, underbuilt, but you're starting to see signs of that. And over the last three to five years, signs of signs of construction activity. Okay. If like you look, the cranes we see outside around downtown LA all the time. Absolutely. If you look at San Francisco, if you look at Los Angeles, there. If you look at New York and some of these markets where rents continue to increase substantially in substantial manner, there's a demand for new product, new buildings. Anytime you're building a new building, 
the older building now looks less attractive, right? What used to be great is now just good, maybe even worse. So when there's new supply, obviously it puts pressure on rents and ultimately puts pressure on prices. You're seeing a lot of that activity in these strong gateway markets. I would say that it's very property market centric if you want to think about valuation. I do operate under the assumption and opinion that, you know, we are in later stages from a duration per exposure perspective in terms of commercial real estate. I think um, to your point earlier about it's sort of leveraged to the U.S. sort of corporate market, corporate market in general. If we're of the view that the U.S. corporate market in itself may endure some sort of stress over the next couple of years due to the ultimate uh, increase in leverage in, in terms of the corporate system, ultimately CRE, commercial real estate, uh, effectively will have a, a trickle-down effect as well in, in terms of stress. Okay, so isn't the good trickle-down that uh, President Reagan told us about or – Actually, I guess you could actually argue that the new tax plan was passed on December 22nd. It was tripled down as well, right? Right. And Bernanke, you know, through QE, quantitative easing, really, I think his goal he already stated was to create the wealth effect, which is trickle down. Right. It trickles both directions, I guess it's fair to say. It goes both ways. It goes both ways. So let's talk about one last thing before we go over to Sam here and let him do his thing. But what I'm curious about is you talk about stress, it's later into the cycle. What do you like right now? Is there certain markets that are attractive or other underlooked, underappreciated, you know, things that are non-primary markets or what are the areas of the U.S. economy that you're finding good value in, in the commercial real estate side? Right. To answer that question, a lot of it comes down to what the current, you know, government policies are that's conducive for the U.S. And so a like lot of tariffs. that tariffs, by way of example, net beneficial to some companies, but not beneficial on an overall basis. Probably bad for right. building real estate if you're taxing steel and aluminum. I guess you're not making billions out of right. aluminum, really, but, but right. steel seems like a pretty important input in that equation. Right, right. And then so then you look at the steel makers in the markets, who the steel makers are, the relative property markets that they're located in, the type of job activity and job growth that, that are in there. A lot of the benefits that we kind of look at is ultimately the tax plan. And from a tax plan perspective, in terms of the tax savings, it actually benefits a lot of people in middle of America. It also benefits a lot of job markets from an affordability perspective. There's absolute affordability. So markets such as Denver, markets such as Nashville, markets such as Portland, these are just anecdotal sort of points in terms of cities that you're actually seeing organic growth that from a large institution perspective, they may be, they may be avoiding. And so for us, we like to kind of pick and choose our spots in terms of markets where there's actually, you know, organic growth. Whether it's job creation, whether it's through the net trickle down effect of the tax, the tax plan from an affordability perspective, things that we like are these type of markets from a property type perspective. I would say that we're still highly sort of uh, constructive on residential, so multifamily apartment buildings. It's done exceptionally well over the last seven to ten years. We do continue to believe that of the asset classes in itself, that's still a very sort of stable asset class that has uh, room for growth and protection from the downside. So we talked about a lot of things today. We talked about how you analyze risk, bottoms up, how macro concerns might affect your your market. Give me the 30-second the snapshot, summary of what how you're thinking about uh, commercial mortgage-backed securities, CRE, and what the outlook is. Right. So staying short duration from both interest rates as well as duration from market exposure, market cycle. 
So if you, you want to stay short duration in that sort of concept, that's always how we're thinking about this. So a lot of our investments, whether it's looking at it from a floating rate perspective and from an index and yield return perspective or a duration in terms of the investment being two to three years in terms, these are how we're thinking about these. We want to know what the exit is because right now is not the time to be overexposed from a length and time perspective to commercial real estate. The second aspect in itself is how we're thinking about this. We are constructive in the commercial real estate sector as a whole. We think debt markets is a good area to be in as opposed to equity. I would say that the consensus seems to kind of share that view as well. It's a time to be defensive, but you can find good deals in certain good markets as we're seeing, especially on the commercial real estate loan side. All right. And before we go into Sherman Says, I have one thing. Actually, Sherman mentioned something that triggered a memory, so I just want to see. I, I think it's you, and I can't remember, but I think it's you. Going back to your childhood, I think a lot of people, when we have childhood heroes, you know, we'll put up posters of you know athletes or something that you really like, like Brett Favre, perhaps. But I think you had a, a poster of perhaps Warren Buffett, people like that, Bill Gates, you know, growing up. And they weren't necessarily athletes, but they are more financial type uh, individuals. Is that true or not? I, I think you're the one that told me that. From a poster perspective, no, but I'm a big fan of Warren Buffett. I do have his book and Gates, as well as akin to reading a lot of financial professional biographies. I was just thinking, you know, like the teeny magazines and then like little young Morris just sitting there clipping out <laughs> Fortune and Forbes taking pictures. I wish I was more. that mature back then, but okay, yeah. fair enough. I guess we'll be remiss. One thing, I guess when we talk to people, people are talking about the, the demise of retail, yeah. right? That the, the Amazonification, if that's even a word, I know it's something people throw around. Walmart getting really more in the digital world. How does that impact the CMBS market? Is it is it creating some opportunity? We've seen the Toys R Us bankruptcy as of late, causing some concern because they're a big landlord and tenant out there across the country. I don't know the fear's overblown and people throwing the baby out with the bathwater, or is it? Truly a concern that, you know, over the long term could have some structural overhang to the commercial real estate market. I think it's throwing a curveball to the investor community. And historically, we haven't seen anything like this actually over the last 15 to 20 years. That's shaken up the a specific sector in the commercial real estate market. In essence, it's creating a lot of idiosyncratic risks. What you would have thought a grocer anchor tenant that, you know, just signed a long term lease 10 years in term. And you have a two-year loan from an investor perspective, your exposure is two years, but the lease is longer than your loan term, you would think you're safe. But you know anything can happen. And we've seen situations where the tenant all of a sudden files for bankruptcy because they're running into financial trouble because Amazon is now impeding upon their grocery sort of business, a grocery channel. So there's a lot of things that are changing and a lot of things that are moving. So I would say, yes, you know there is a bit of a cautionary stance in terms of retail. The way we try to avoid this, and I would say the CMBS market is pretty good at policing itself, is to limit retail exposures and transactions. You'll tell the issuers that are putting together these transactions to say, hey, I don't want retail. If you put retail in, I want a massive price concession, and it's we'll leave it up to you whether or not you think it's worth it. Most of the times it works. There's limited retail exposure. You know, For us, it's definitely a scary time, and that's part of the benefits of being here at DoubleLine. You have the resources to leverage off of our corporate team, try to you know, run ideas and assess credit risk in that sort of concept, and that's how we work in a fluid manner. All right. Well, uh, thanks for causing uh, or quelling my concerns for now. So Sherman says time. Yeah, you're ready. All right, so Morris, I don't know if you're ready for this, but we have this segment of the show 
that we close with. It's called Sherman Says. I'm going to say a term and try to elicit a response from you. And what I do is I alternate between Sherman first and then you and then back to Sherman. So we'll start off with Mr. Sherman. And what he didn't mention is we try to do it in one word. Yeah, Yeah, he he never gets the rules. I've given that up. That's why. I've given that up, but we'll see. Infrastructure debt, Mr. Sherman. Infrastructure debt. It's attractive. Taco Bell or Chick-fil-A? Chick-fil-A. Tariffs. Bad. Brick and mortar. Stores. Wage growth. I want to say anemic, but it's showing signs of life, but not what it was pre-crisis. There's your one more dancer. Perfect. Inflation. Increasing. CrossFit. Horrible. Paleo diet. Tough. Housing affordability. Opportunistic. Bridge loans. Attractive. Two-year treasury yield. Accelerating upward. VIX. Low. And that's it. All right. Well, thanks, everybody, for tuning in. Thank you, Morris, for joining us today. Hoping in the future we'll get you in more magazine publications with your photos so that young investors out there can follow your dreams and clip you out and put them on their wall and think about you when thinking about uh, investing. But again, thanks, everybody, for tuning in. If you have feedback, uh, you can reach out to us at shermanshow at doubleline.com. All one word or all put together, shermanshow at doubleline.com for feedback. And you can find us on iTunes, Google Play, and SoundCloud and on the Double Line website. Thanks again for tuning in, and we'll be back in a couple weeks. Thank you for having me. The audio presentation represents Double Line's intellectual property. No portion of this presentation may be published, reproduced, transmitted, or rebroadcast in any media in any form without the expressed written permission of Double Line. Double Line has no obligation to provide any updates or changes. To receive permission from Double Line, please contact media at doubleline.com. Neither Double Line nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast and any liability therefore, including and respective direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage is expressly disclaimed. Double Line is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice in this podcast. The receipt of this podcast by any listener is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by any Double Line entity or individual to that listener, nor to constitute such person a client of any Double Line entity. The portfolio risk management process includes an effort to monitor and manage risk, but does not imply low risk. Copyright 2018, Double Line Capital.